This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us worship the Lord our God.
Lord, I lift up my soul. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Holy God, in whom we live and move, and have our being, we know that we are restless until we find our rest in thee. In this hour, open our hearts to praise you and thank you for your generous mercies to us. Gracious source of our being, we praise you and thank you for even the breath of life given to us. Fill our hearts with your presence that our mouths may proclaim your praise. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia on this beautiful World Communion Sunday. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the house of the Lord, and because it is in Christ's name that we are met, our welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you would please sign the friendship tab that you will see on your pew. You may sign it, send it down the pew and back again, and we will have the advantage of each other's names at the conclusion of worship that we might greet one another. We also invite everyone, both members and guests alike, to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, and down a very short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have prepared some light refreshments. But most importantly, you will find the opportunity for us to gather together in Christian fellowship. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention. The first is the Peace and Global Witness Offering, which is an envelope you will find in your bulletin. That is one of the approved offerings to be collected by our denomination. A little bit of background on that. You may learn more about that offering by going to pcusa.org to find out specifically to which it goes. But a portion of it stays in the local congregation here at First Church. A portion benefits our presbytery, and then a portion goes to support the larger mission of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. So please learn a little bit more about that. You can Google it on your phone during the offertory and learn a little bit more about the Peace and Global Witness offering. I'd like to highlight as well today that the FPCQ group will have a brunch following worship today. If you'd like to participate in that, even if you have not indicated you'd like to before, just find Larry Slagley. He's in the back corner of the sanctuary, or you can find him in Old Buttonwood following this service, and the FPCQ group will enjoy brunch together today. I'm also delighted to welcome Paul Fleckenstein as our guest organist today. This is one of many Sundays Paul will be with us this fall. We are grateful for your leadership with us today, Paul. Thank you for being here. 
there is a large insert in your bulletin about the upcoming 325th anniversary celebrations. I'm not going to read it to you, but I am going to call on Alan Skimmel to say a word in a moment for history. of the Commemoration Committee is nearly over. We first last year celebrated the 150th anniversary of the completion of this sanctuary, and this year we are celebrating uh, 325 years in the city of Philadelphia. But there are some important events still ahead of us, and they come on October 8 and 15, where the Reverend Jesse Garner will take a look the history of First Church in the context of the social economic forces that have really been heavily influenced, influenced the history of this church. So I encourage you to attend at 1245 in the Nepal room. Sandwiches and light refreshments will be served, and so I hope you will join us. There is one other thing that will occur next Sunday, and it will be in effect the unveiling of a new book, The Art and Architecture of This Church. Primarily written by Michael Smith, it was added to significantly by William Leonard and Owen Robbins, the latter of whom did an outstanding job of editing and formatting the publication that we will see next Sunday. You will have the opportunity at after fellowship hour to obtain a copy, your suggested donation will be $20. Of course, it all ends on November 5 with a celebratory service on All Saints Sunday. Thank you. God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ reigns in power for us, Christ even prays for us. With such assurance, we need not fear confession, but simply draw to our Maker in candor, first together and then in silence. Eternal God, remind us of our baptism as we prepare to come to your table. Remind us that at this table, old hurts may be healed, estrangement may be met with reconciliation. Hear the grace and mercy of your forgiveness overflow from the fullness of your love. And yet, too often, the distance across this table seems insurmountable. Too often, we treat your beloved community as something that is nice to have, not as the lifeblood of our faith. Forgive us, we pray, and renew our common calling to life together. Bless the ties that bind us, one to the other, through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, believe the promise of the gospel. Testament reading is from Ezekiel 18, beginning with verses 1 to 4 and continuing with verses 25 through 32. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth have set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Know that all lives are mine. The life of the parent as well as the life of the child is mine. It is only the person who sins that shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is unfair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way unfair? Is it not your ways that are unfair? When the righteous turn away from their righteousness and commit iniquity, they shall die for it. For the iniquity that they have committed, they shall die. Again, when the wicked turn away from the wickedness they have committed and to what is lawful and right, they shall save their life. Because they considered and turned away from all the transgressions that they have committed, they shall surely live, they shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is unfair. O house of Israel, are my ways unfair? 
Is it not your ways that are unfair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, all of you, according to your ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions. Otherwise, iniquity will be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn then and live. Our second lesson comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing of the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. These are the words of the Lord.
before our gospel lesson, I'd just like to make one additional note for our common life together, and that is that next Sunday, the co-moderator of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Reverend Ruth uh, Santana Grace, will be preaching here at First Church as part of our 325th anniversary celebration. So I do hope you'll be here next Sunday to welcome Ruth Santana Grace as she is our preacher of the day on Sunday. Our gospel lesson today comes to us from the gospel according to Matthew, the 21st chapter, reading from verse 23 to 32. Continue now to listen for the word of God to us this day. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? They argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your mind and believe him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me now, if you will, in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Almighty, eternal God, Grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let me tell you about a time I didn't do what I said I would do, and a time I did what I said I would not do. The first was the first time I made a real pledge to a church. And I don't mean a dollar bill or a five dollar bill in the plate, but a pledge that would push me to reach into what I could do. I reached high. And I also completely failed to keep it. I was straight out of school and my old car required a costly repair in January, and it took me until November to finish paying it off, so unable to do what I said I would do, instead I did nothing. 
The next year, at pledge time, a wonderful saint of the church suggested to me that there might be a somewhat more holistic approach to giving than attempting instant sainthood through money. Perhaps, he suggested, you might find a figure that makes you mildly nervous rather than maniacal. Perhaps, he queried, 10% is a bit much to ask of you at this stage of your life. Uh, perhaps you might consider 2%. And then eyeing my car with far more disdain than he ought, he added, well, maybe 1% this year. So that year, I set an incredibly low figure. And with the pressure off, I blew right past what I said I would do. As Laura reminded us last week, God is enough. And in God, we are enough. So when that pressure comes off, what does that freedom enable us to do? What is our faithful response to the love of God? Questions I hope we will ponder, but this is not a stewardship sermon. This is a discipleship sermon. We all know that God calls us to give because God calls us to live in community, and community does not just happen. Jesus is explicitly clear that he calls us to love one another. Indeed, he calls us to love even when that love has to come from a very deep place. But it is a calling to a life of freedom. Freedom from crushing self-absorption. And with that freedom comes a renewed call to be God's people in the world, which brings us finally to our text today. It is, to be sure, a challenging text. It is a text that could be considered rife with opportunities for hypocrisy. It is a story laden with opportunities to pile guilt on ourselves. But that's really not the point of this parable, so I'd like to chart a very clear course from us. So let me be very clear that Jesus' goal in telling this parable is not to make us feel bad about ourselves, uh, nor is his goal, as far as I can discern it, to try to coerce us into good behavior, because the Bible makes it clear that's a losing proposition most of the time. No, it is to prompt us to think to think about what it is to be church and to live in the fullness of God's call to us. Remembering, of course, that everything that we have, everything that defines us as people, our worth, our awareness, our substance, is a gift from God. A gift from God. That, that's not the behavior of someone who has it in for us. So we are freed to think instead about what this calling means for us. Because, at the same time, we do know as well that God wants more for us and from us than we want from ourselves at times. As I said, our text today is a parable, and actually, to be more explicit, it is a parable set within an argument. The chief priests and the elders of the people come to Jesus and they quiz him. They have ideas about what the kingdom of God looks like, and they would like to proof text those ideas from the pages of scripture. But not surprisingly, Jesus 
also has opinions on the matter. His scriptures, of course, would comprise what is our Old Testament, and the overarching theme of, of really scripture in general is that God's word is God's love letter to humankind. So understanding scripture in this way, we naturally can see how Jesus might be a bit tetchy when it's presented otherwise. He is nearing the end of his ministry. He knows that his ministry will end in an act of self-giving love because of the ways that crushing self-interest causes people to act. And so at this crucial moment, Jesus appears to lose his patience, but he keeps his wits. They want to know where he gets his authority. To be fair, that is a good question. Because it is a question in which the answer to it lies the answer to all the rest. It is a question asked against the, asked against the backdrop of all that Jesus has taught. That we, when we are living for the other, when we are living in a community of self-giving love, when we are working for the reconciliation of creation, authority comes from God because that is the business that God is about. But rather than saying all these things again to the chief priests and the elders of the people, Jesus asks them a question. Where did John get his authority? And they stumble all over themselves in their answer. As New Testament theologian Tom Long puts it, they are damned if they do and damned if they don't. He writes, Jesus' question was a sharp scalpel dividing two different forms of authority. First, there is human authority. No matter how sophisticatedly it is packaged, it is a matter of raw power. If you have enough people behind you or guns with you, you have it. And what you say goes, period. Divine authority, on the other hand, has to do with the truth, the truth of God, the truth about who God made us to be. In the short run, human authority can appear to overwhelm divine authority, even to crucify it, but ultimately, God's truth remains. Community, reconciliation, love that reaches deep within itself in order to love. Jesus has been teaching us that these, these things are the business of God. And I will readily acknowledge that there seems at times to be a campaign perpetually waged to make these appear to be weak values. But they aren't weak values. Those are the very values that make us human. Because to be human is to be in God's image and to live as though we are about God's business. And what's more, this parable, this interaction, appears near the end of Matthew's gospel narrative. And there's just something about the cross looming over the story that suggests another form of power as well.
So by what authority do we minister? In whose name? For what purpose? When we commit ourselves to following the one who defined himself in relation to God and humankind, we necessarily commit ourselves to the business of God. We declare that despite any evidence to the contrary, that the powerful way to be, the faithful way to be, is to seek others' interests above our own. What an extraordinary calling at times it must surely seem to us aspirational. But the church has always needed to speak with authority. That is why the church must be clear about what we are about. Even opening ourselves to the charge of hypocrisy because we will inevitably miss the mark. We must still be clear about what the calling of the church is to be. That is also why the church must do what needs to be done. Even if we haven't made a big show of saying what it is that we are about, because that is how we will be faithful. Faithfulness is not about whether or not we promised to be saints and failed to deliver, or whether we stumbled into sainthood when we were planning other things. Faith comes down quite simply to whether or not we are willing to follow Jesus Christ. And let me pause and acknowledge that at least a few of you may be a little bit nervous with all of this sainthood talk. I get it. I started off talking about throwing a dollar in the plate, then we got to following Jesus, and now we're into full-blown sainthood. It makes me nervous, too. But sainthood is not a category that is reserved for those who are pure, those who meet the mark in every imaginable way. No, no, it is an invitation that is offered to all of us to live our lives immersed in what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Not only when we miss the mark, but especially when we miss the mark. Because that's what the calling of discipleship is to constantly follow Jesus. And when we fail to pick ourselves up and to keep on following Jesus. And that is, I think, perhaps the heart of what Jesus is saying in this parable. That saying all the right words. And this one hits home for me as a theological junkie. Believing all the right things isn't nearly as important as following where God calls us to be. My friend Larry Owen in Atlanta probably put it as succinctly as I've ever heard it when he said he's no longer convinced that God is all that worked up about our orthodoxy, but he is absolutely certain that God cares about our orthopraxy. We must do what Christ calls us to do. And I know a lot of people who perhaps resist Christ's call because they are afraid that Christian discipleship is going to cost something. And in the spirit of absolutely full disclosure, 
Christian discipleship does cost something. It costs God something. That is what we remember when we gather at Christ's table. What it costs to call us into being as the people of God. And so we perhaps find ourselves confronted again with that pesky question, the very question that those friends asked Jesus. By what authority do we act? And always we find ourselves confronted with an answer that the authority comes from God who chooses to exist in self-giving love. And even though this isn't a stewardship sermon, it is decidedly a discipleship sermon, it is good to remember that we will never outgive God. So we come again to this parable with its question about the one who promised and didn't show up. And the one who didn't promise and yet followed through. And in the end, Jesus, who lived, promised. So let me close with a few words from George Buttrick. It's an old quote. It, it certainly has the idiom of its time, but it cuts both ways, I think you'll find. He writes, thus the voice of Jesus strikes upon the chaos of modern religion like a clear bell. He shames our crude evangelism, with, which vitiates its zeal with ignorance, vulgarity, and mercenary motives. He shames the current popularizing of religion, the truckling to the curious, the dangling of a bait to catch a crowd. He shames our orthodoxies with its petty dogmas, its imagining that the mystery of God and the ultimate verity of the cross can be squeezed within a few poor words of man's invention. He shames our liberalism with its light rejection of hard-won truth of generations and its fond imagining that a new thing is therefore a true thing. He shames our psychologizing of religion with its pretense of sounding the depths of the soul by giving strange names to the levels of consciousness. Across this modern babble, come, across this chaos and destruction, the voice of Jesus rings like a bell. Into this fetid brawl, he comes like a cool wind driven across the stars. This is his message. Do what you know to be right. And the ampler truth will dawn upon you as you walk. Carry your reason into sanctified energies. Fulfill your emotion into transfigured conduct. Let worship and neighborliness be the divine alternation of your life. Thus, you will gain the kingdom even as you help others to gain it. Thus, you will prove your sonship in the test of deeds. Hard words, perhaps but ultimately always a hopeful word because it dares to believe that God who calls us into the vineyard imagines a future more dazzlingly restored, renewed, and forgiven. 
than we can possibly fathom. By what authority may we act? By the authority of the very one who calls us to this table, this table offered today the world over, this table of the one who promises to meet every need. So come, dear friends, to the table of the one who did everything that needed to be done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. affirm together with the ancient baptismal creed of the church. What do we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, our only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on 
remember all that we have and all that we are is a gift from God. Let us return to God the gift of what we have taken from God's abundance and the prayers of our hearts with our morning offering, remembering that God loves a cheerful giver.
eternal God, you have gifted us with abundance upon abundance. And from your generosity, we take all that we need. And from that, we return this portion to you, asking, as always, that you would bless it and use it, and that we might be blessed as we see your kingdom at work among us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the Lord. And scripture teaches that people will come from east and west and north and south to gather here at Christ's table. Indeed, from the pages of scripture, we, we learn that the disciples first recognized their risen Lord as he broke bread and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they knew him. It is even still to this table that we are invited to come and to know our Savior. He calls all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens to come to him, and he will give them rest. Dear friends, this is not the church's table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to none but our Lord Jesus Christ, who is its unseen host, who calls all, who calls you to come to the joyful feast of the Lord. You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. You sent him into this world to satisfy the longing of your people for a Savior, to bring freedom to the captives of sin, and to establish justice for the oppressed. He came among us as one of us, 
taking the lot of the poor, sharing human suffering, and we rejoice that in his death and rising again, you set before us the sure promise of a new life, the certain hope of a heavenly home, where we will sit at table with Christ our host. Remembering your gracious acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and joyfully celebrate his dying and rising as we await the day of his coming. With thanksgiving, we offer our very selves to you to be a living and holy sacrifice dedicated to your service. Great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. We remember you, Lord Jesus, as you have commanded in the breaking and sharing of bread. We remember you, O Christ, as we drink from this cup. O Holy Spirit, who brought us here to proclaim the risen Lord, unite us in one body with him who loved us and gave himself for us. On this World Communion Sunday, remind us of the ties that bind us to one another. Remind us that in Christ there is no east or west, no north or south. You call us to see beyond what separates us, geography and ideology, creed and confession. We are united in you across time and across space. We are one in Christ so that we may offer Christ to the world. O God who calls us from death to life, we give ourselves to you and with the church through all ages. We thank you for your saving love in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We read from the pages of the gospel and from the letters of Paul that on the night of his arrest, our Lord took bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after they had supped, he took a cup of wine. And he gave it to his friends, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let, Let us, us keep, keep the, the feast. feast.
us pray together once more. Eternal God, we thank you and we praise you that in love you have reached across the abyss of our sin to bring us once more into your embrace. Having now fed us at Christ's table, send us to be Christ's body. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.
go in peace as Christ's beloved who have been fed at his table in the sure and certain knowledge that you will return to this table in this life or in the life that is yet to come. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>